on a very special consensus. I have so much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. Consent is the gold standard. Everyone knows what's going on and everyone said yes. Hello, exactly. Open and honest communication. Mutual acceptance. Consent is. And like, you'd have to ask me like when I'm not drunk. Hello, exactly. Consent is honesty. What people agree to do. Respectful. Hello, exactly. Never optional. Sexy and required. Hello, exactly. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Consentences, where we'll be talking alternative lifestyles through individuals' experiences, navigating desire, danger, and the importance of consent. I'm Snow, and today on Consentences, I'm joined by my magnificent wife, Ms. Marvel, and our... Hey, guys. Hello. And our guests today, hosts of the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, Dr. Jess O'Reilly and her husband, Brandon Ware. How are you guys doing this morning? Just perfect. Thank you. So for our guests who may not have heard your podcast uh, or are aware with your work, would you guys give us a little background on your experience? Sure. So the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast is about all things sex and relationships. So we talk about everything from emotional literacy to healing after sexual trauma to anal pleasure and health. So we kind of run the gamut. And I'm a sexologist, so I I work in the field. And I've written a number of books on sexuality. And Brandon is not at all a sexologist. Not even a little bit. But (laughs) I uh, happily join and learn with every episode that we record. Very cool. Yeah, uh, and that's actually uh, pretty similar to where we're at uh, in terms of what we do. So, um, I mean, I come from a background of adult learning theory and uh, corporate training. I end up dealing with consents and boundaries and assertive communication styles um, with a wide range of ages and people that come into learning about boundaries and how to communicate with people from very, very different directions and points sometimes a lot of misinformation sometimes just straightening some stuff out are you seeing a a real difference between the way young people navigate consent and then if you're working with older people absolutely it's a huge difference Um, I think that it's built into how young people are navigating their sexuality and gender identities um, and really what they want or don't want as they're kind of migrating through identity development Whereas older people, I mean, the ones we interact with are great humans and they get it, but it takes a little bit of different correction. And I think it just, there have been a lot of assumptions throughout the years, especially in like a swing in lifestyle around, you know, yes until no. Working on correcting some of that in a really compassionate and empathetic way where it's not attacking the individual, just trying to educate has been fascinating to say the least. It's been a heck of an experience. Awesome. That's brings up a really interesting topic. I know that when uh, we met at the uh, Sexual Health Alliance lecture series where you were speaking, uh, we had a, a chance to talk a little bit and you told us about how one of the things that you do is that you do talks and workshops and a whole bunch of stuff at Desire Resorts in uh, Cancun. And I'd actually love to hear a little bit more about what your work is there. 
Yes, sure. So we actually just came back from Desire, Riviera Maya. And so if people are familiar with the concept, it's a couples only, although there are exceptions, but it's a couples focused resort. It is clothing optional. It is very lifestyle friendly. It's a mix of what I, people who identify as, you know, in some sort of a sexual lifestyle. I know the lifestyle means different things to different people and just regular folks who are really open-minded and want to feel kind of the erotic and sexual energy. So it's not a nudist or naturist resort. I know that there's an important distinction between sexuality and nudity. So you can be nude, but you can also engage in sex in various areas of the resort. So they've built these kind of big jacuzzi areas. One is on a rooftop surrounded by four poster beds. Uh-huh. The other is in the ground, also surrounded by four poster beds. And then they have a couple of playrooms. So there's a lot of play going on, oftentimes just between partners that, you know, the, the person that you came with. And there are people who just enjoy the exhibitionism of it. There are, of course, folks who enjoy the opportunity to be voyeurs. And then, of course, there are people who are uh, changing partners, joining in in groups. And so it, it's interesting to see the way consent is navigated in these spaces that are uh, highly sexual or at least sexually charged versus, say, a traditional nightclub. So if you, if you look at a traditional, like a regular nightclub, you're going out, you're having drinks with your friends, you're dancing on the dance floor, and somebody comes up behind you and is all of a sudden dancing with you. And as you said, it's the yes until someone says no. So they kind of gauge whether or not, hopefully, you're moving away from them toward them. But there isn't the asking in this universal language that we all share that, that separates us from many of the animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, at Desire and at many of the lifestyle spaces that I move through, there is a more direct communication. If I'm dancing on the dance floor, somebody comes up and says, can I dance with you? Or my partner would like to dance with you. Or are you open to being danced with? So, it, And so I'm just talking about dancing here. But of course, there are other things people are doing as well. Just Can maybe. we watch? Can we <laughs> sit here? Yeah. So yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see the different ways, different groups of people navigate consent. Are the two of you lifestyle? Is that part of kind of what drew you to working with Desire that you had been there previously as a couple? Or uh, what took you to Desire? Yeah, yes and no. So we went to Desire just because we liked the idea of this place where you could have sex in public and see different things around you and kind of engage in all the, the sensual, uh, overwhelming environment. Sure. But I, I don't think we identify as lifestylers at all. Um, I don't know if it's an age thing or um, just, I don't know. Like I, I sometimes think we're in this age between, we're not super, super young where we were offered all of these uh, kind of the buffet of language uh, around sexuality and gender from mm-hmm. a young age, but we're not old enough that we were like, hey, we're lifestylers in terms of being, uh, you know, in the swing lifestyle or in, in a polyamorous lifestyle. So we're probably, we're really, it's hard to describe us. And I, sometimes I don't even want to because sure. I feel like I get pushed on it, but um, we're, we're monogamous. Yep. But then we also sometimes do things that aren't. But yeah, we we like to we like to describe ourselves as uh, monogamish with opportunistic tendencies. Yeah, I think I think that might be a fair description. And so I also differentiate between kind of what you do and how you identify. So if you know, last mm-hmm. year if we 
did something in some sort of a group, really light um, from a lot of perspectives. But we, it's not a part of our identity. It's not a big part of how we move through the world and how we navigate the relationship. And so I think that that gives us a lot of kind of monogamous couples privilege, sure. right? Because, and so I think it's important that the language doesn't always work for me. It's the same thing growing up. I didn't really like the word bisexual. Um, and then again, being in a relationship, um, you know, I, I'm identify as a woman, Brennan identifies as a man. Um, being in a relationship with a man gives me this hetero privilege. And so even though I talk about being queer, queer is a word that works for me. Mm-hmm. Bi, when I was younger, didn't. And queer hadn't quite yet been reclaimed the way it has today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are limitations to many of these spaces. So because so many of these couples, I think like let's say half of the couples identify as being in the swing lifestyle. The swing lifestyle to me, comes with its own set of, of issues around gender and heterosexism and sexism. Uh, I'm not suggesting that everyone in the swing lifestyle ascribes to these, to me, challenging or problematic norms. But I, I do see it where, for example, I'll see people at a club. I was at a, a club here in Toronto doing a workshop, and Brennan and I stuck around to dance and have a good time after. And somebody will walk up to you um, so let's say it's another, a cu- another couple and the, the guy will turn to Brandon and ask if he can dance with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you're going to ask Brandon if you can dance with me. Yeah, that, that's um, a fun one. You probably can't dance with me, <laughs> <laughs> but so we run into these issues, even in subcultures that are intended to be progressive. Uh, still, of course, not living in a vacuum, not existing outside of these cultural cultural gendered norms, and and women are still treated like gatekeepers. For example. Yeah, and it, that one's um, actually really interesting too because it's something that we experience uh, in you know, I mean, we we navigate in the BDSM and kink communities as well as you know uh, other whether it's going to, uh, I mean, we've been to hedonism too in uh, Jamaica. And it is still that which I find really funny. It happened, you know, multiple times in various arenas where people will come up to me and ask me something about Marvel, and I can sense that in their head it is they're being very respectful, and yet, of course, yet I have to like flip that and be like, so you're not asking to do something with me, so why are you speaking to me? Like I can understand right. if like you and your wife or another couple wanted to talk with both of us about something that's obviously that would be totally fine. Cause that's just open communication around anybody who would be participating. But I do find it interesting that uh, a lot of times that'll be what happens and I need to like reguide them. And they're almost like a little shocked. Like, Ooh, you want me to talk to your wife like without you? And like, you don't need to know what's going on. I'm like, here's the thing. If you talk with her and she's unsure about what's going to happen or we've not already communicated about what we're comfortable with and what we want to do in that given night or in that in that scene we're not going to have a good time anyway so I need to trust that my partner is going to make the right decisions and pull me in if there's something that is above and beyond what we had previously discussed or you know anything that's like that and I find it really interesting how I like you were saying the the progressive nature of what these lifestyles are there is still almost like it feels antiquated in that people still don't see that as a reasonable way to communicate within them. Uh, Which, I mean, I think is really interesting also because ultimately what that sets up 
is if you're asking Snow for permission to whatever, talk to me, dance with me, play with me, so on, it puts me in a really odd position when if he's going to grant permission and I still don't want to. And that's what makes that part so weird where like some guy can ask him and then come up to me and I'm like, well, that's nice that he gave you permission. Also like, nah, but it's a harder no at that point. I would much rather like, I'm going to be able to answer that first based on what my desires are. And then I'm going to negotiate that and have a conversation with snow to make sure that he's on board because that's how I respect our marriage. Um, but I, I certainly don't want anyone to think that because somebody's partner gives them permission that they then have blanket permission with the individual. Right. And I, again, I think this falls strongly into these gender norms and, right. and, it, and it's rooted in, if so, it may not be motivated by, but I do believe it's rooted in notions of obsession and specifically of, of women being the property of men. Yeah. Cause it I'm never happens the other way around. I've never had somebody, uh, nobody, I don't, to my knowledge, I've never known anyone to go up to Marvel and say, hey, would it be okay if I did this with snow? That's not true. There are some women that will come up to me. It's usually actually specifically around dancing. Um, but like definitely they're like, do you mind if I dance with him? And I'm like, I know he's really great dancer. He's super hot. Go for it. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> Maybe he'll even like twirl you around and turn you upside down because I get a little scared when he does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I do have, I have had women ask things about Brandon, but I think, I think part of the challenge is when you're dealing with more than one person, you're trying to understand what the agreement between that couple is. So I don't know, again, I don't know that it's always ill-intended, but I think that these are, um, you know, holdovers from monogamy culture and toxic monogamy that we need to to talk about. Uh, You know, I, I see other issues where I'll hear them say, women, the women call the shots. It's all about the women. Uh, you know, whatever the women are into, we're into. And I think this puts um, a huge, ridiculous onus on women, but also suggests that men are rearing to go with anything. And again, I'm talking in a hetero context here, because sure. um, these, these are the couples that we're encountering, for instance, at, at Desire or at these, these other clubs. And not men are down for anything, right? There's this notion that all guys should just want it because it's kind of free sex, it's extra relational sex but you know when we see emotional breakdowns on the sidelines when we see people run into feelings that they weren't expecting we see it regardless of gender it's not a long gender line yeah uh, and for sure i mean and it it is interesting that it's although it certainly leans more toward that side of it where uh, oftentimes it's you know men or women asking the male in a couple in a hetero couple for permission for things and that feeling, I mean, a little or very unbalanced in terms of what that is. And like to your point where um, if that's happening and not all parties are communicating together, then there's a very good chance for there to be miscommunication and for at that point, you know, uh, emotions or jealousy or other things to start to come into play uh, if not everybody is on the same page. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it also brings up an interesting question or thought about just how we gender emotion in general in our culture, what those sideline emotions look like in terms of sadness versus anger. Yeah. How that communication then goes following, um, how you make those repairs, how, how you can be honest with your partner only to the extent that you can be honest with yourself about what your emotional experience is. Right. And we don't give men enough permission to be honest with a range of emotions. That's something Brandon talks about often. Yeah. I mean, I find that, it's difficult. I mean, I, I can only speak about my own experience, but I do find that 
you know, there are a lot of existing challenges I have to overcome to be honest with myself and then honest with my partner and then to communicate that because there are just pre-existing ideas of what you are and aren't supposed to be. So you got to shed them and just, you know, once you break through those barriers, at least from my experience, it's, it's liberating. It's very, um, it's, it's a whole new world. <laughs> yeah. And whole honestly, new, whole new series of experiences. Absolutely. And I mean, I can uh, speak to, I know, kind of uh, early on uh, in our journey together as a couple, uh, we were going to parties that were, uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, it was kind of like a home group for uh, kink for Marvel. And I like went into it with her. And because of the person that I knew her to be at that point and what her expectations were of going into those parties, uh, I told myself a whole bunch of stories of how I was just going to like white knuckle getting through what this was going to be without truly communicating. It didn't go well. It didn't go well <laughs> like at all. Um, oh, pushing through is never the right option. It's like, I have an idea. Let me just have another little, uh, little drinky and I'll just make sure I get through this. Okay. Yeah. That's not how that works at all. And so uh, mm-hmm. it's been something that certainly over time being able to have those really frank and honest discussions around what we're comfortable with and knowing that uh, although by and large, I mean, certainly when uh, we go into, you know, kink arenas, um, you know, we don't negotiate mid scene is, I mean, very specific to scene work in kink, but in general, like we don't renegotiate new things during a night when we're doing things but we can always have additional discussions to kind of negotiate things out that we're not comfortable with. And by and large, we really try to talk about things in terms of, you know, here's what we're comfortable with for tonight. And then, you know, should we meet new uh, people or those we'd want to play with? Uh, We respect the boundaries for what we've agreed to for that night, because chances are, if there's something that we want to do or someone we want to play with on that night, then there is absolutely nothing wrong with, you know, waiting and having an additional discussion for it to happen at a later date. Because if it is something that is just that level of instant gratification and you're not going to want to do it again, then you probably don't have the greatest why around why you want to do that thing. And so we want to be really, really thoughtful and respectful of one another and ourselves and how we want to uh, navigate within the scenes that we're in. Right. And I think one of the challenges for people who are looking in from the outside uh, at different identities or different behaviors, they say, okay, I want to be in the lifestyle or I want to be in an open relationship or I want to try this or I want to try that. They don't realize that just deciding to do something is it's not even the tip of the iceberg, right? There are so many conversations that need to be had and it's an ongoing, it's on an ongoing basis. I'm always concerned when I hear couples uh, and this is, this happens often in the swing lifestyle, for example, will say oh no we know each other inside out kind of like I know what he's thinking I know what he's feeling so I've been with Brandon for 19 years we spend a lot of time um, understanding one another's emotional needs working on our own emotional literacy and I, I don't know what he's feeling I might have an idea I actually feel a lot more comfortable assuming that I don't know what you feel exactly. because then it's going to prompt me to have that to ask those questions to make sure that she that Jessica is comfortable and, you know, that, that open communication <laughs> ensures that issues don't arise or fewer issues arise in the future. Because, you know, again, I just assume, like, are you okay? How are you feeling? What's going on? You know, and trying to gauge that as opposed to just turning a blind eye and saying, well, you know, we agreed to it before. So, it so now it's okay. fine. <laughs> right. We call it this expectation yeah. talk. Yeah. And then we yeah. always have a debrief. Yeah. 
it's a critical part of that. Yeah. And it's really fun to go through at the end of the night about what worked and what didn't work as well and what we need to talk about more tomorrow because now's not the right time. <laughs> but yeah, and I right, think right? I think yeah. to, your, to your point, Brandon, that, I mean, taking that extra moment to just have a discussion around something, even if you're like 99% sure on how something went or how, you know, Jess may have felt about something, just asking takes a lot of the pressure off what's happening and ensuring that you're aligned with your emotional wants and desires for whatever is happening and not leaving it out to just assumption on something. And I think also too, that uh, like something that I can say that like, yep, I'm totally fine with whatever we've agreed upon. And then I don't know like a hundred percent how I'm going to react or feel about something. You know, it's like, I mean, I could, you know, be watching her with, you know, someone else and like that and that I, you know, I know and I like and everything's cool. And then I like hear that person say something to her or see her look in a certain way. And all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, I just get hit with, you know, either. I mean, it could be, you know, compersion in a way that I didn't expect. And I'm really, really happy about what's happening. Or it could just be a spike in jealousy where it's just like, oh, my God, I did not think I was going to feel that way about this. And it's like it's in those moments and being honest with myself and not just grinning and bearing it through anything allows for us to get closer to places of compersion and really enjoy the things that we're doing because there's not that fear of how the other is going to react to something or that we're not going to be able to enjoy the experiences we're having because we're worried about our partner. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and for me, yeah, um, much less eloquently, I just want to know that Jess knows that she's my priority, right? If I know that she knows that we're on the same page, then it's just going to make her, it, it's going to reinforce that this relationship, like for me, this relationship takes precedence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's the underlying issue there that I need to drive home or I want to drive home at any given point in time. Yeah, and then there's that tenuous balance with if there ever are, I mean, for us, it's, it's not very often, but if there are other people around, you may be prioritizing your own needs and my needs, but we also have to look at how, how they feel respected and how they feel valued and honored. And, you know, even though you know me better and you're spending your life with me, you know how to take care of me, but you may not know how to offer them support. And so that means that there's an additional conversation upon conversation upon conversation if people are bringing other people into the equation. Absolutely. I mean, in the lecture series that you did, it was on the topic of threesomes and there was uh, another speaker who was there, uh, uh, Eli, who was talking about uh, unicorns. And mm -hmm. it was really interesting in like kind of how those topics overlaid really nicely in talking about how uh, if, I mean, not, and again, kind of like Unicorn hunting is kind of like a really nasty term in most scenes and something that can kind of get you blackballed depending on how you're handling things, which I find really interesting because it does happen, at least to some degrees. And certainly in threesomes it does, where whether you're adding a man or a woman to your um, to your couple, it, it was just really interesting talking about so much of it where it seems like so much of it is only about the couple and now it's just this add-on. And oftentimes people aren't thinking about that as like a three-dimensional person in in the world who also deserves the same level of communication and uh, respect and being able to discuss everything that is a want and need between all parties involved, not just, hi, we're the couple, we want to do these things, like be down or be out. 
it's like, oh, that's probably not the best way to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, and that couple's privilege is a real thing. I, I see that all the time in threesomes where couples will come and say, this is what we want. This is how we want to do it. We want to make sure our relationship comes first. And of course, you want to, you know, safeguard your relationship. That makes sense. But when that third person's needs become secondary or tertiary to your own, that's a real problem. And nobody wants to feel like they're being used as a prop. And uh, Luna Matata, she's another sex educator. She's amazing. And she talks about how to land a unicorn because she herself is a unicorn. And the things that really matter to her, being asked what she's into, talking about what her feelings around this are, talking about what her potential insecurities and jealousies may be. You don't have to be in a relationship to experience insecurity and jealousy. Are we going to sleep over after? Are we going to get a meal? Uh, are we going to chat? Because we couples often come with this notion that this person is just going to walk in, please you, fulfill your fantasy, and walk out because they, they cannot possibly have an effect or you know potentially be a threat to your relationship. And if, if you want someone to walk in and walk out and fulfill a sexual fantasy, there are people who are really great at that. So hire a sex worker who... who can manage this really, really well. But if you don't want to hire a sex worker and you want to meet someone at a bar or you want to do this with a friend, you have to be mindful that this that you have to have a conversation with your first yourself first. You might have a conversation with your partner next, but you're bringing in a third partner into the situation, so there needs to be uh, real consideration for them. And and it, it's interesting because one thing I do observe um, in couples who are looking to open up their relationship, couples who are looking to have threesomes, couples who are in the swing lifestyle is one thing that they're perfectly fine with today. They might have a meltdown over tomorrow Mm -hmm. and it can be really difficult to identify why that happens uh, because we just aren't always in touch with our own emotional needs and we're also kind of working on emotional literacy, but it's okay to feel jealous. It's not a disaster if you have an experience and you have to stop because you know what? I'm just feeling really uncomfortable with this. This is making me feel insecure or this is making me feel a feeling that I can't name, but I don't like it. Uh-huh. It's not a disaster. It's not a setback. It's not a poor experience. It's an experience that leads to more conversations, which is going to enrich relationships all around. Absolutely. That's actually something that Marvel talks about pretty frequently is uh, some of the negative emotions or ones that we certainly equate as being negative, whether it's you know jealousy or envy or shame, and kind of can you talk about those a little bit, babe? About just kind of, although I mean we have them for a reason, and you know, I don't know. yeah, I'll I'll take over that one. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think that what Snow's driving at is that um, emotions are quick shorthand information about our environment, and they're based on survival and they're based on instinct and. They don't always have cognitive processing that goes along with them as quickly. So it's entirely possible for somebody to feel a series of emotions and just feel not at ease and not be able to identify them right in the moment, which makes it harder to be able to stop things um, in that moment because it takes the knowingness that I have the right to say yes or no and I have the right to change my mind. Um, And not always because I'm going to be able to tell you in that second what's wrong but that something's wrong and I need a minute to like just sit with myself and figure that part out. I mean, I think that's, it's been critical for us even going into events. Like we'll put events on our calendar for a month or two out. I've got no idea where I'm going to be that day or how I'm going to feel that day given any other set of vulnerabilities in my life. And those moments happen that I'll look at snow and go, 
you know, I am not feeling it right now and I'm going to do what I can to, to shift my perspective because I want to be in this environment. But I might also need to tap you out a few times so you, I can just be with my person because I'm having a rough day. Um, and he's been really responsive and respectful of that, which is beautiful. It doesn't need to be a, oh, well, she's upset, so now our night's ruined. It could just be she's upset and I'm just going to be aware of that as I move through my night. And ultimately what happens with that is that my upset lifts. But only because it's that sharing and that willingness to be vulnerable and to, to accept and receive support in that moment. Yeah, and and I think that's a great way to kind of describe how we we manage those things. And I think uh, kind of another layer to that too. I mean, we're also you know really big advocates that for people people just in general, but certainly people who are in alternative lifestyles are also uh, you know augmenting their own self care with uh, actual you know seeing professional you know whether it's a you know a therapist or uh, whomever, but uh, another mental professional to kind of help them have those discussions. So, I mean, we have a, a professional we work with and we um, see both as a, a couple and individually. And, you know, it's been something that has been you know, massively important in us better understanding ourselves and better understanding one another to be able to be more successful in the, in the scenes that we really do enjoy, but know that there are inevitably going to be pitfalls that whether, whether we're aware of them or things that come up or, you know, life happens uh, and, you know, we, you know, make, you know, poor decisions or ones that ultimately aren't within kind of the, the us first mentality that those are things that we are going to have to deal with and we are going to make mistakes. We're human. And I think that it's, you know, uh, just another, outlet to be able to have those discussions with an objective third party and to, to better kind of hash through those emotions that may come up. Absolutely. And we, that's why we, you know, we're working so hard to destigmatize therapy and I'm Chinese Jamaican. And so these are a number of cultures for whom therapy is not the norm. And we have a, a history of, of being oppressed and of being treated as though we're weak. And we, we have historically seen going to a therapist as a white person thing and going to a therapist as something that forces us to acknowledge that we're weak and we haven't been able to afford acknowledging that we're weak because we're already facing threats from the outside world. And so, and then, you know, I have a number of colleagues doing work in decolonizing therapy as well, because a lot of us were not comfortable going to white therapists. And so we need to be recruiting more people of color into the field so that we feel like our cultural values are reflected. You know, like when I look at relationship challenges that, Brandon and I face, um, they're different than, uh, Brandon is white, but than a lot of other white people because the norm in my culture is parents living with you. So my father lives in our home. We don't have a big, you know, sprawling mansion. We have a very small home. We live downtown Toronto. And so one of the challenges we face as a couple is this living arrangement, is this third person in our relationship. And I remember seeing a, a white therapist who was like, well, he needs to move out. You've got to move him out. And that's just that's a very narrow um, cultural lens through which to operate. And so I think there are many barriers to not only accessing therapy because of the cost, but also um, feeling like we have difficulty finding therapists who understand our cultural backgrounds. And, and yes, somebody can develop sensitivity and understanding, but also just looking for people from our own backgrounds. And that's another thing we see in the lifestyle, which is that there's a, a real fear uh, that I've experienced and other 
people of color, and particularly black people that I've worked with experience of not really wanting to necessarily mix with white people because this distrust exists. So there are all these layers um, to the conversation mm-hmm. that I'm glad we're finally talking about. And it's, it's been too long. Yeah. And actually, I think that that's kind of a, a good segue now we're talking about just kind of therapy in general. Uh, just because I, I, I don't know if everybody, I mean, I'm, I was total, not totally, but I was unaware specifically of the definition of what a sexologist is because, and it's, it's not quite in that, uh, therapy realm, but you are a PhD. So kind of, uh, like where does that fit in, in therapy? So what is, uh, a sex, sexologist and then how does that fit within the realm of, uh, of like therapy or just mental health in general? Uh, so sexologist is a pretty umbrella term. It's a term that, you know, I started using many, many years ago when I was in school. So some of us are therapists, like my, I have a background in cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, some of us are educators. I was a, a high school teacher. Uh, some psychologists are more uh, really focused on public education. It could be around public health. Uh, many sexologists are reproductive health and reproductive justice activists. Um, so it's a very, very broad term. Okay. It's basically anyone who studies sex. Okay, so it is just truly just the the study of sex, and then, um, but it, so do you also do you practice? Do you have a, a personal practice around therapy as well, or is I mean, I obviously you have a uh, just a handful of things that are on your plate in terms of how busy you are with uh, you know uh, speaking engagements and you know all, all the um, different things that you do, writing books, your podcast, so much else. Do you also have a, a private practice, or are you a part of a practice? No, I don't generally practice therapy. I do a lot of referring out, but it's not, uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I do some brief solution focused stuff that is more along the lines of coaching. Gotcha. Uh, because sometimes when I'm traveling, these groups will ask for private sessions. Uh, I'll tell you just personally, it's not my preference. It's not, um, I, I find it very interesting, obviously, because you're always learning from cases, but there are many ways to learn from cases. Sure. I think outside of the therapeutic or clinical setting. But for me, um, because I move around so much and because my personality is very suited to moving around so much, so I'm, I'm in a, really a different city, um, not even every week, but every couple of days, uh-huh. uh, it's just not, it's, it wouldn't work for me. And I do get clients who are in my session, so we're working in a, in a group process. And, you know, as you know, they feel some sort of an alliance to you and they want you as a therapist. So it, it can be a challenge because even when I try and refer out, they're like, no, no, no. Don't worry, I can work around your schedule. Meanwhile, we're nine and a half or ten and a half hours in different time zones. They're in India or they're in Jordan or they're in Dubai. Right. So, it's not exactly <laughs> conducive to it's just like, yeah, so we're going to have a session uh, every three weeks, you know, when the moon is waning. And it's like, well, exactly. I mean, that's probably so not going to be the, <laughs> sure. it's like like the personal trainer. Really good, good roster. Yeah, I have a really good roster of uh, folks to whom I refer out and and. Because there are so many brilliant people working in sex, sexual health counselors, mental health counselors who work in sex and sex therapists, uh, you know, I can help them to find someone who's really a good fit for them. Did you have something, Marvel? I was just going to say it was like the personal trainer on the cruise ship isn't coming home with you to help you continue your, your workouts. But <laughs> <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, I do I do really appreciate that your willingness to refer out and to hold your own boundaries in that. Because at the end of the day, I mean, it's much like bringing in that third party for the threesome. Like, it's great that they can work around your schedule and they feel really connected to you. But if that's not the kind of direct clinical work that you're trying to do, then you're not the appropriate fit for that. And it's that's powerful. 
So thank you for doing so. Oh. <laughs> and we on the ground really appreciate the referrals. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, I, so if there are therapists listening who have specialties, um, if they can send me their work or their portfolio or um, even just videos on them talking, it, it, it can be really helpful because my clients like to, I mean, my clients are young, they're busy, they're primarily entrepreneurs or CEOs and they want, they kind of, they're very focused on results. So they like brief solution focused therapy. They like cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, they do like emotionally focused therapy and obviously people pr- practice a blend of modalities, but if folks are listening and you're looking for referrals, it's, it's not, um, it's motivated simply by, does it suit the clients for me? So you can definitely reach out and get in touch. Sure. And I would imagine as well, even though, I mean, you're not actually, you're not currently practicing that, uh, having that as your as your background and being able to leverage all of those tools and all of those learnings in you know the uh whether you're doing you know lecture series or workshops or whatever has to be massively beneficial for for you to to be able to speak more articulately around all of the topics that uh any of your clients or uh guests attending um would really be able to make use of I think so. And I I mean, I'll tell you, when I was in teacher's college, I thought it was the biggest waste of time. I was like, you know, doing all these planning and writing all of these lesson plans and reflecting and, um, you know, looking at our own limitations and biases. And it it felt a lot like busy work. This is a long time ago. This is like 2005. Mm -hmm. But now I use use those skills every single day. So it's a blend. um, And I'm really appreciative of the pedagogical background that I was able to pick up and carry with me uh, as we go. And what I really like about the way a lot of therapy is moving is that the purpose now is to empower clients or patients to be their own therapist, to develop these tools. Uh, You know, that's one thing that really appealed to me about cognitive behavioral therapy. The purpose is for clients to be able to become their own therapist. That doesn't mean that, you know, they don't need support at times. But I think there's an old guard around medicine, around therapy, around mental health, where there were the experts and then there were the rest of us. But the reality there, I'm is, sorry, what was it? And there were the experts and then there were the, the what? The rest of us. Oh, the, the rest commoners. of us. And, you know, the elite held the power and held the knowledge. And I really I appreciate that we're moving away from that. And, I, you know, I, I want to challenge institutional control of of knowledge, of skills that are essential to absolutely everyone. So yes, I I understand that there is value in higher education, in academia, in degrees, in professional memberships, but also there are brilliant folks that can learn all of these skills and develop these tools and gain these, the knowledge, excuse me, without necessarily having the money and the privilege Right. to go through formal institutions. And you'll see that in, in the sex educator community and the reproductive justice community, folks who are doing incredible work who don't come from a background where they could afford to go to, to an undergrad, let alone a master's, let alone a PhD. So I think it's important that we're having these conversations. I think 20 years from now, uh, we're going to see even more movement to toward alternative means of I guess not becoming certified, but becoming respected in in the field because some of the most brilliant minds in the field, they don't have PhDs, they don't have master's degrees, some of them don't have undergrad degrees, but 
we, we can't make knowledge something that you can only get if you pay a certain amount of money and attend a certain class. And I think that that's what I'm happy to see in the field of, of therapy and education overall. Preach. Really down those yes. Down those <laughs> All of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, we are experts in our own experience, ultimately. And the idea that somebody else has the key to that is is crazy to me. Um, I, I want nothing more than to train and teach myself out of a job. Because my job security is not going anywhere, unfortunately. There's a lot of people yeah. out there that need a lot of help. But the more that I can teach my patients how to have coping skills for the right now moment, and then like, yeah, let's go ahead and like we'll process through and unpack some of the stuff that happened earlier on in your life and how we got here. But ultimately, if you don't have skills for coping for right now, then unpacking the past is not going to be useful and it can be really, really dangerous. So having that moment of like, how can I teach you how to manage the grocery store and your marriage or your relationship and um, your feelings that come up day to day so that that person can have that kind of empowered control in their own life? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're, as you said, you're never going to be out of work. Um, and I, again, I really value the the skills of therapists. I wish we, we just had more accessible therapy. I mean, it really should be accessible. I'm from Canada where you know, physical health care is accessible to us. I can go to the doctor three times today. I, I had something on my leg yesterday, for example, a small little, um, I thought it was like a little mole that was looking raised. And you just go to the doctor and she kind of uses some, I think it's a nitrous substance and burns it off. And I don't pay for any of that. I don't even have to think about that. And so I think, uh, you know, from our perspective as Canadians, it should be the same for mental health. You should be able to see a mental health provider at any point in time because we all need that support. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another question I had too uh, around that is somewhat related to this and you, and you talked about just a couple moments ago uh, was that prior to uh, becoming a, a sexologist, you were a high school teacher. So what was it that made you decide to make that career change? Because uh, that was right around the time that uh, you and Brandon got married as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, we, we had been living together for many, many years before. So the oh. marriage was really, I want to say it was a piece of paper, but it was actually just a party. Gotcha. And you know about <laughs> a big that game. party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, oh my God, it feels so long ago. But it, it, high school, teaching high school ultimately was what led me into this field. It was a total accident. I was teaching high school at an alternative school downtown Toronto. So my students were 16 to 21 years old in and out of the system. Many of them uh, grew up in care and foster care. Uh, all of them, almost all of them grew up in poverty. And so they were considered, the language we used at the time was at risk. A uh, lovely group of students really loved my work. I uh, didn't like going to a, a the same classroom every day, but it was alternative. So we had a lot of flexibility. And I saw the cost of a sex education system that was failing us. I saw the cost of uh, a lack of knowledge, a lack of comfort, a, lo a lack of resources for students teachers and parents and the cost of a sex education system that is not focusing on consent, on pleasure, honesty, equality, respect, and the right to opt in or out of sexual activity. Uh, you know, the costs are unplanned pregnancy. The costs are folks, young folks already in abusive relationships, folks living in familial relationship environments that are toxic and abusive. So it's not always intimate partner violence. Uh, I have students coming in and who were dealing with uh, drug and alcohol problems that were related to sexuality. Students who didn't have the skills, the tools, and the supports to navigate uh, childhood sexual abuse. And so 
the way I see it, because our education system is a little bit different up here in Canada, uh, the curriculum is mandated at the provincial, which would be our state level. So it's not on the whim of a principal or a school board or a, another type of administrator. It is mandated by the government, so it's across the board. And so what we had was, uh, you know, a, a decent sex education curriculum, but what we didn't have were the supports for teachers. So I decided to go back and focus my, my doctoral work on supporting teachers to increase their knowledge and comfort levels with the topics that are of greatest interest to, at the time, Toronto's teen community. That's great. Yeah, I mean, certainly here in the U.S., I mean, it runs the gamut in terms of what happens at, you know, the, you know, whether like middle school or high school levels, primarily where, you know, it, you know, there's still schools that just teach abstinence and that's a thing. And, you know, other schools that are well more progressive and are talking about, you know, you know, sexual activity and what that means and uh, really doing a, a, a more comprehensive job of uh, educating our youth. And, you know, it's, you know, more education around this stuff when you're younger is never a bad thing. And it's bonkers to me that that's not how people think about it. But I mean, there are various reasons for that. And it's just because of that, though, and because you never know how somebody, you know, was initially educated, kind of where they're at uh, in being able to process, manage and navigate different lifestyles, especially, you know, if it's, you know, someone who may have been brought up more conservatively and then, you know, starts to uh, understand and kind of unlock their own personal sexuality and preferences and identity and then don't really know how to deal with those things uh, being thrust into, you know, scenes and lifestyles where you have people who are at the complete other end of the spectrum who maybe, you know, grew up in a, uh, you know, a, a mixed gender polyamorous household where they were exposed to every type of sexuality that could exist and talked about all of it. And, you know, uh, it just, it, it makes it that much more important to have a focus on communication with people that we're meeting in these, uh, in these communities, because there shouldn't be any assumption around how they think about things, how long they've held those beliefs, how open-minded they really are about things. And all of that is really only going to come through talking with them and then experiencing those scenes with them. Right. And we, we have a wealth of research suggesting, or, you know, confirming that talking about sex doesn't lead to the onset of sexual activity. There's a lot of fear around talking to young people about sex. Our sex education begins in, in primary school here, and it's not necessarily about sex. Sex intersects with a broad range of topics from self-esteem to body image to the way you communicate to assertion skills to consent to hygiene to all, all of these other areas. And we know that just talking about it, providing comprehensive sex education that includes a discussion of sexual activity, that includes a discussion of pleasure, that includes a discussion of harm reduction – doesn't lead to students or teens running out and having sex. It does not hasten the onset of sexual activity. And, you know, you, you take a country like the States in the developed world having the highest you know, teen abortion rate. And this, this is tied in to abstinence education, which we know because we have data doesn't work. And then abstinence education, of course, is tied into these values around purity, uh, very, very heterosexual focus. 
oh, sure. um, very rooted in, in, in gender, gender norms and stereotypes that we know are toxic, that we know are damaging to people of all genders. It's not, people often think like, oh, it's about radical feminism. Okay, yeah, it's partly about radical feminism, but this is about a better life for everybody. And we know that gender equality, the outcomes for the country, for the economy are better. We know in business that when you have more women on a team, uh, we, we see higher productivity. We see greater returns. And I think that if we were to start including trans folks and non-binary folks in this research, because they're still entirely left out, we'd see the same results, that the, the broader the spectrum, the better the outcome, even in, if you want to look at capitalism, even in a profit-driven economy. Sure. I mean, uh, shockingly, somehow being radically inclusive and having more people have a voice allows for you to have better understanding of what impacts can be across the board, across gender, across sex, across, I mean, it's, yeah. And I like to joke with my patients that when I was in high school, I did not need to carry a five pound sack of sugar and baby clothes around to learn that I wasn't ready to have a child. I certainly could have used some skills in emotional regulation and interpersonal effectiveness and understanding what consent means for me. That was a really, I lived my 20s thinking that I was empowered and I was using my body and no one else could use me. And I moved into my 30s and went, holy moly, no, I have been completely using myself this entire time and not deriving what I need from these relationships, just moving from one to the next. Um, So being able to really learn about what's my why and why do I want to engage in this um, and, and what am I consenting to? And learning how to manage my own feelings with less concern about managing somebody else's is it's been an incredibly powerful experience. It's been the jump off for this whole podcast. Well, it's been my jump off. Yeah. How great would it have been to learn those skills from a young age? I mean, like little tiny kids can understand this feels good. This doesn't feel good, but we're not giving them the language to express it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely, and that's, uh, it's wonderful to hear that that's something that, I mean, you and I'm sure many other people are doing as being advocates for that to kind of push that as uh, a means of better educating our, our youth so that, you know, they can take more ownership of their, you know, own sexuality and identity as they move through the, like this radically changing world. So, and that's, that's really, really cool that that's, you know, something that was what your transition was as to why you kind of moved into what you're doing. So that's fantastic. And I, I love my work. I do miss teaching, but I'm always teaching in a different capacity, right? Whether it's like clinical type trainings or even just working with, with corporate groups, it's, it's all education. And I'm always learning as well. I walk away from every group with pages of notes of things that I need to continue learning about. Yeah. And that's actually uh, a good segue into, so another, another site that you have is happiercouples.com which is primarily around couple education, around various things. I was taking a look at it, and it seems like there are a whole bunch of different courses that are offered there. Yeah, so we're actually transitioning the brand. Sex with Dr. Jess will soon be Happier Couples. And so we're just kind of, it's it's in its beta stage. But yeah, happiercouples.com is all about online resources because not everybody can come in person and not everybody wants to. So um, we have a range of topics, but the goal would be to get, you know, a hundred different courses up there from the simple how to's, you know, perhaps in the kink world mm-hmm. to uh, a course on emotional literacy. So it's, it's quite broad. And, you know, because I'm always learning, I guess I expect that everybody else wants to learn about all of these different topics as well. Like, yes, of course it's sex. You can learn about, you know, how to, how to, 
go down on your partner and that's actually really easy. But uh, I'm hoping that I can use that as a segue to also draw people into conversations that are, are really important for intimacy, for passion and for, for resolving conflict. Yeah. And okay. Well, that's good to know as well. So, I mean, certainly as we uh, talk about you both in, in general, that uh, making sure that we're talking about both of those, if that's where things are going to be transitioning to in terms of how people will be able to get more information about you both and get uh, more of that education piece. So that's awesome to know. Uh, we're, we're coming up pretty close on, on the hour, and uh, but I did want to talk about uh, one more thing that we, we briefly spoke about at the um, SHA lecture uh, when you were up there, and I was like, why is this person so familiar? I know I've seen her before. And then we started talking, and uh, you were the original host for uh, Playboy's Swing. Um, and so uh, I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about that experience just because I thought it was so interesting and just the um, the show itself is really interesting and kind of how it's laid out and kind of um, and, and how the show works. So for, for people who don't know what it is, can you just give like a little quick snippet on it and then kind of just talk about what that experience was like for you and for the people who are uh, on it that you worked with? Sure. So Playboy Swing was a reality show about swingers. So there was a group of swingers living in a house in well a couple of years we were in vegas and we were in la and every weekend i'd bring in a new couple who thought that they wanted to try swinging but they weren't quite sure and so my job was to in tv format walk (laughs) them through it make sure they were feeling comfortable they would have their experience which is you know among the safest experience you can possibly have because all you know the people living in the house were really considerate really nice couples yeah, as long as it, at a bar wanted not, to be there. as long as it's a baseline you're okay with being truly exhibitionist <laughs> yeah so that, that's certainly a limitation of the show but yeah so they would have their experience and you know sometimes it would go well sometimes it would be neutral sometimes it wasn't so great in in rare cases cases and the next day, I would just go, go back and debrief with them. So they called it therapy, but it, again, it's television. So it was more of a debrief uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. And it was a really cool project. So I was really reticent to even take that role in the beginning because I didn't want to just get branded um, as working in the swing world, not because I don't love it, but because I, I was doing lots of other things as well. Right, but I can imagine I that, that my- could become something where you get very pigeonholed and like, okay, this is the lifestyle that she works with, and like, that's it. Whereas very yeah. clearly you have yeah, a so pretty big breadth of things that you work with. Right, and so I, I was nervous to take it. Also, it was one of those things where, you know, they Skype auditioned me on Wednesday and they wanted me in L.A. by Saturday. <laughs> and uh, so it just it felt a little bit off, but it turned out to be a super cool project working with some really incredible people. Uh, Wendy Miller, who actually also has a podcast. Her podcast is called Sex Ed the Musical. She comes from working <laughs> at, uh, you know, all the big networks. Uh, she's very, very funny. She's a com- comedic writer. But she was in charge of development for Playboy TV at the time. Okay. And she was a really cool person, a really kind person, a really considerate person. Whereas on every other reality TV set that I've been on, they're trying to create drama. They're trying to um, create caricatures of people. This wasn't her goal. And I think because on Playboy TV, we had five sets. You see live sex. You don't see like close-up meat shots or you know, finishing shots or anything like that. But we show the sex. We didn't need the drama. We didn't need somebody throwing someone else's purse in the fire because they were mad at them. 
And so Wendy was really considerate of these people. And she would say, she said, these are, these are their relationships. We have to safeguard them. And so we didn't want to, you know, put stuff out there that was embarrassing to people. And so the show was really real. People were having sex if they wanted to have sex. They weren't paid to. They weren't instructed to. Right. And they weren't having producers in their ears, like cast members to say like, oh, say this to them. Or like, there's something that you wouldn't have known about, but we saw in another room. And now we're just going to tell you happened. It's like, no, it's actual people. I don't think so. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was just kind of a real organic story that developed. I mean, as as least as as a reality show can be, for sure. But it it certainly, it seems much more of that. I mean, obviously things are going to be manufactured and there are games and like whatever else because it's still television. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that like just seeing a lot of the the interview pieces of, you know, the people, you know, at the start of it and then those debriefs, at, you know, at the end as to, like, what the experience was for them was just kind of refreshing just to see because it, it did. It had, like, more of a, a sense of honesty than uh, a lot of other reality shows can. Yeah, I, I think it was produced with a, a high degree of integrity. It's a really cool project. And, uh, yeah, I was proud to have been a part of it. And what's so interesting is, first of all, uh, I meet a ton of couples. So, I just, as I said, I just came back from Desire and we met dozens of couples who said that they made their foray into the lifestyle. They're not necessarily swingers, but they go to a place like Desire just to open their minds because of that show and because of the conversations we had on that show. Now, you know, I was it was a long time ago. I was kind of doing what I was told. I think I'd still do things even differently today and push a little bit harder. But uh, not only did it lead people to have conversations that opened their minds to possibilities beyond strict vanilla monogamy, but it it also, I think, uh, helped people to set a standard for what they should expect for a first experience. So it's not just about, you know, getting drunk and fumbling around in the dark and hoping that you connect. (laughs) These were kind of ongoing conversations, asking people, what are you comfortable with? What are you into? Getting a bit of background and getting to know them. And I think that's, that's a a cool concept. And so what, what I, the, the impact that I know that it has had is evidenced by the fact that I get emails every week from people asking if they can be on the show. They really want to have their first experience (laughs) on the show. The funniest thing too is people email and say, I really want to go through the swing house. Is there any way I can come but not be videotaped? So that's how safe people envision this house. And that is really cool. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny too, because it's, I mean, hearing people say that and then, you know, having met other people that, you know, as sex workers are people who do that as couples and, and will swing with other people in that way. And uh, Marvel and I were joking about it. I was like, well, I mean, and certainly I can understand in a controlled environment like that, like that, it's going to be as safe as it, as it possibly could be because you have so many people who are there for, you know, legal and for, you know, like so many and security, like tons of stuff like that versus going to a resort. But essentially it's kind of like going to a, you know, a desire or a hedonism and, or a bliss cruise or whatever. Um, and like exposing yourself to that and then making sure that you just maintain your own advocacy for what you're comfortable with and like making sure that you have your own voice for all that. But that's really what those uh, resorts can be. And certainly, uh, I mean, to, I mean, for, like you and Brandon is an example, or uh, certainly many couples that we met at Hedonism, whether it was their first time and they were just kind of testing the waters or people who have been there a lot and they're like, no, we're not swingers. We just love this environment, you know, and the the freedom and, the freedom and acceptance that uh, it can be to be in an all-nude environment or clothing-optional environment 
uh, and being able to meet other people that are, you know, just able to express themselves, you know, uh, a lot more kind of like, I mean, at least on the out outwardly, uh, confidently in those types of spaces can be something that, uh, can, uh, kind of like you talked about in, uh, in your threesome, uh, lecture around those can be things where that becomes what's sexually charged. So even if you are monogamous, just going and kind of getting that, you know, kind of eye candy and being able to be voyeuristic and then kind of taking that back into your relationship is something that a lot of people do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, opening up oftentimes means kind of opening up your mind, speaking your truth more than necessarily doing something physical. Uh, I think that people have this tendency to want to equate an identity or a state of mind or a state of being with a specific act, but it's, it's not a specific act. It can be anything you want it to be. And that's, you know, that's the work I'm trying to do is help people figure out what they're into and embrace it and feel good about it and give themselves permission to allow it to be empowering. And what it is today might be different than in a month or in a year or 10 years. And that's perfectly fine because it's not only that, you know, we exist along a spectrum, but we're always evolving. And, and I think people just need more permission to do just that. Agreed. Couldn't have said that better. <laughs> Absolutely. Like we are dynamic and growing and changing individuals. And the more we learn, the more I think we have the, we can access that full spectrum of emotion. And again, in being able to articulate that or think that through for ourselves and then articulate to another person. And those are each their own steps. It's not like as I, I've got curiosity about something and then I've got a perfect language and a way to articulate all of my desires and thoughts and fears around it. Sometimes it comes down to just being asked directly because a lot of us didn't grow up that way. So I'm very excited about Absolutely. the work you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you can find more information about Dr. Jess and Brandon on uh, their websites, sexwithdrjess.com and happiercouples.com. And on Twitter, they are at sexwithdrjess and at Verity Brandon. That's V-E-R-I-T-Y, Brandon. And I uh, just wanted to say thank you guys so much for being on the show. This is uh, a really great conversation. Yeah, do you guys have any upcoming events or anything you want to plug for our listeners? Yeah, th thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we'll be on the Desire Cruise in the south of France in May. So it's the Red Carpet Cruise. And I know that they've got some good promos on right now. So if you, I'll, I'll put it on my Instagram, Sex with Dr. Jess. Uh, so that you can check it out if you do have the opportunity to fly out there. Of course, I know that's not for everybody. So the podcast, we, we release an episode every Friday morning, and it's the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast as well. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thank you guys so much. And, uh, yeah, look forward to hearing more of, uh, of your work and what's coming up with you down the road. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. Bye, guys. We love you. I love Mwah. you guys. For additional show information, including related articles, links, and social media, check out consentences.com.